The content presented in this podcast is solely for educational purposes and should not be used as medical advice to diagnose, manage, or treat any health conditions. If you or someone you know has a condition or disease discussed in this podcast, we would encourage you to create and implement a care plan specific to your needs under the supervision of an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of experts in the field of fetal medicine and should not be interpreted as the standard of care. Hey, Loomates. Welcome back to the News Room. This is Aaron Moise. And this is Ken Moise. And we're continuing our Tupata series on what they didn't teach you in laser school. Right, right. How to be humbled by a procedure. It's this one. Let me tell you, after all these procedures, I still am humbled. Maybe we can start again with that anterior center, the one we like the least, right? And it causes probably the most problems. I mean, we always ask the referring dog, anterior, posterior, posterior, good. Yeah. Yeah. Lateral, good. Fundal, good. Anterior, yuck. You know, it's just an angle issue. A lot of us are still searching for that steerable, flexible scope. I think we may have one soon. But until we have a reproducible, steerable scope that you can look up at the ceiling with, we're stuck with some pretty good stiff scopes that have 30-degree lenses. And we even have pirated one with a 70-degree lens. So you can see the vessels with these scopes really well. These are diagnostic scopes and not operating scopes. And Kurt Hetcher out of Germany actually helps towards design a 30-degree scope, 30-degree lens, so you're looking ahead of yourself a little bit, but not straight up. And it's got a little cantilever arm on it, and you push the laser fiber into the cantilever arm, and there's a little dial on the side of the scope, and you can bend the fiber up a little bit so that you can shoot up. And many times that's all you need to do the interpol center. You can get by with that 30-degree steerable, well, not steerable, but cantilever scope, petroscope. But there are other times where you still struggle. And so there's a couple of tricks. The first that I learned in Leiden when I was observing is, and it just made so much sense when I saw him do it, is just have your assistant push on the opposite side of the uterus and sort of flatten the uterus out. So you just change the curve of the uterine wall so that placenta kind of moves to a lateral site. And that's a, that's a nice trick to get to some of those vessels. And you can almost shoot straight on. And that works a lot. But you just have to kind of help them and position their hand as you watch through the scope to see see where that pressure needs to be placed to get better visualization. The second thing that you can do if the vessels are close to where you inserted is you can put the cannula right up on the vessel and pull the laser fiber back a bit and fire through the cannula. Now, sometimes you fry the end of the cannula a little bit, Mm -hmm. but the bottom line is you use the cannula to protect the laser fiber and you just sort of compress the vessel a little bit with the end of the cannula, bring the laser fiber back into the cannula and fire a tiny burst and knock that vessel out. And so that's shooting through the cannula is another nice technique on the interplacenta. If your cannula is long enough, it doesn't help you all the way across the placenta. Pushing on the opposite side helps then, but proximally to the cannula insertion, you can use that technique of firing inside the cannula and that can work for the interplacenta. So some tips there. Add fluid? Well, yeah, that's a good point. Sometimes you can add fluid if there's like a ridge and you want to flatten it out. Sometimes you can go ahead and do that infusion. You have your fluids set up. We always set some fluid up, like we said, with oxacillin in a bag. We just let a gravity run in and put in, you know, three or 400 cc's, maybe up to 500, just to try to flatten that ridge out a bit. And sometimes that helps to get around these ridges that appear sometimes in the interplacenta and you can't see around the backside. So that works. Yep. 
And then let's move on to you're in the OR, you're operating, maybe you've just fired some big vessels or maybe even some small ones. And your tech tells you there's a fetal bradycardia and both twins. What do you look for? What are you checking? Yeah, that's unusual. You'll sometimes see a transient bradycardia in the recipient or the donor, but rarely will you see it in both babies. We do have our sonographer watching heart rates during the case. They're not actually measuring the heart rate, just watching qualitatively what the heart rate's doing. And it's not uncommon to have transient bradycardia. There's not much you can do about it. I think if you had a terminal bradycardia in one baby, you would want to quickly complete your laser to protect the other baby from any exsanguination. But other than that, the issue sometimes is that you rarely will see this, but you'll see both babies braiding down. And what you have to think about there is what's the mother doing? What's the uterine blood flow doing that's causing that? So we've seen that a couple of times when, let's say, mom's blood pressure drops for some reason. So she's not perfusing the uterus and both babies braiding down. And the answer is, you know, talk with your anesthesiologist and go, what's mom's blood pressure doing? Let's give her some fluids, it's whatever, back off on her drugs because you're not perfusing the uterus. And the one other time early in our experience we saw where we were doing infusions and we sort of lost track of how much fluid we put in. And the anesthesiologist just kept changing the bags and didn't tell us. And we got way ahead on the infusion and both babies braiding down. And we sort looked at the deepest pocket and it was up to like 18 or 20. We went, oh my goodness, how much fluid do we put in here? So we rapidly pulled the fluid off and sure enough, both heart rates responded and returned to normal. That pregnancy went on to do fine after the laser. But the idea there was probably we were decreasing placental perfusion from the inside by increasing the intraamniotic pressure too much. So think about kind of common elements to placental perfusion or uterine perfusion when you see both babies braiding down in a procedure. And usually it's a correctable situation where you can resuscitate those babies in utero without worrying too much about them. Okay, I remember mom telling me a story about this. So you take your foot off the laser pedal because the surgeon has, they control the laser from a foot pedal on the ground and you take your foot off of it and it keeps firing. So what do you do? I know what mom does, but what do you do? Well, first of all, I think your laser tech, we use one of our nurses in our center because we like consistency. We don't want to have a different tech or a different nurse every time. And they're uh, checked off on how to run the laser. Right. And-, and they're trained. And there's a there's an emergency red stop button on there. They're told that if anything goes wrong and we tell them to, they have to do a shutdown of the laser. I guess worst case, you know, you could unplug the laser, but there is an emergency stop on all lasers. We've had a couple of occasions. One was we had an old YAG laser we were using and the gate stayed open. There's a gate that drops in front of the laser before it shoots down the fiber and the gate stayed open and was stuck. And we're like, oh my God, what do we do? And again, emergency stop and everything went away. I do think you want to pull your fiber back in the cavity. So defocus the laser, but you don't want to take it out because you're firing all over the room, right? So you don't want to do that. So I would move the fiber backwards away from the placenta as far back as you can safely. You probably don't want to pull it all the way back in the scope because it could probably bounce off the inside of the scope, but you want to move everything back and defocus that laser to some extent. And then make sure your nurse knows to do emergency stop. We've had two episodes. It was with the older diode where it had this tube, black hollow tube, between the pedal and the actual machine. And when you press the pedal to fire the laser, it pushed an air column down the tube into the diode itself. And that caused the window to open and close. And we had a fellow one time inadvertently step on that tube after the laser pedal had been deployed. And so the laser wouldn't turn off. So the new diode, I think, has a much more resilient tube. It's got some lining where you can't compress it. But think about that. If you have the older system, that tube can either be depressed by a foot or something and either keep the laser from firing, or if you're already firing the laser, we continue to fire the laser when you let up on the pedals. So be sure that tubing's clear of everybody. The new tube, again, is much more difficult between the pedal and the machine to compress and cause any problems. 
Okay, so while firing the vessels, you see an acute bleed from the vessel you were just firing. What's the next step? So you bursted the vessel. You bursted the vessel. I, I think it happened one of two ways. One, you either touched the vessel, you were too close to it. A technique learned a long time ago, before you fire the laser, you could touch the vessel. This is particularly when you're working very deep inside the uterus. Touch the vessel, dent it with the laser tip, and then pull back a little bit and fire. But if you do punch a hole in it, you've got to kind of figure out what side to laser quickly. So you either have to go left or right. You're going to start infusing some fluid because everything's going to go red really quick and that baby will exsanguinate very quickly. Maybe both babies will exsanguinate. So you want to move left or right of that and try to coagulate that vessel on either side of the hole to stop the bleeding. That would be the most important thing. And you want to get some fluid moving so you can see what you're doing. So either you touch the vessel when you fire the laser or what I've seen happen too is you've got a very big vessel and you're trying to close it down and your power is too low. An inching technique has been described where you laser on both sides of the vessel to sort of slow down the flow and then you hit the vessel itself. What we've found is that the biggest problem there is you're probably not using enough power. Most people in the United States use a 20 to 25 watts in a diode. I know Europeans like to use 40 watts, but clearly if you're not using enough power on a bigger vessel, say a 23 weaker, then you probably need to increase your power before you hit those bigger vessels. Okay, and what about if you're lasering an anterior placenta and you touch the laser fiber and get bleeding? So now we're looking up at the ceiling and it's bleeding right, on it's us. Coming down on us. It's yeah. raining. It looks like a lot. I remember the first time it's happened to us early in our experience. It looked like the patient was bleeding to death and realized that the laser fiber and the tip of it's small in a pencil point. So it's not a lot of blood coming out. It's from the intervillous sinus. This is, you know, if you hit something on the placenta between fetal vessels, that's maternal blood coming out. And there's two tricks to that. One is to laser around it and see if you can coagulate the hole. On one occasion, the hole was big enough with enough bleeding that we actually decided just to put the scope inside the hole. And we got a beautiful look at chorionic villi, which is kind of weird. But the temperature at the tip of the scope was sufficient. Just let it sit there for about three minutes and it coagulated the blood in that spot. So we didn't fire the laser. We just put the tip of the scope inside and left it there for about three minutes and the bleeding stopped. So those are some tricks to deal with if, in fact, you get bleeding from a placenta. Again, the trick is to stay away from the placenta. If you have to touch it with a tip before you fire to know where your tip is, you just don't want to get too close to the placenta. Rarely the patient will cough or take a deep breath and that'll be problematic with an anterior placenta. So you got to be careful with that. Okay, so now let's get into some possible post-operative complications and tips and tricks. Patients in recovery, and we obviously have them on the TOCO monitoring their uterus, and we get a call and they say there's a significant change in mom's vital signs. What do we suspect or what are we thinking? Yeah, so, I mean, realize we're working around very vascular tissues, the placenta. And so there can be any number of things that can happen. Only in two occasions do I remember this. One was an abruption. And mom's vital signs changed dramatically. And when we looked at the, came back, she was having a, quite a bit of pain. We'd left her with the deepest pocket of five or six centimeters after the amnio reduction. And we came back and she had 10 centimeters of some fluid in the uterine cavity. And we figured it was blood. And so she'd experienced an abruption probably from the amnio reduction. In that situation, we had to take the patient back and put her to sleep and do a hysterotomy. And we, we lost those babies, unfortunately. But anytime maternal vital signs are changing, think about some type of weird maternal bleeding, either in utero as in in the case of an abruption, or we had one case where, although we cleared the abdominal wall, we didn't see any bleeding at the time of puncture, patient's vital signs changed post-op. She dropped her hematocrit, and we went to scan her. There wasn't any increased fluid inside the uterus, but she had free-floating loops of bowel in her belly, and that was all blood. And she had dropped two or three units from the puncture site intraperitoneally, 
And we went in, we did a laparotomy on her with a vertical abdominal incision, not knowing had we hit some uterine wall vessel, had we hit some bowel, what did we hit? Maybe hit an anterior abdominal wall vessel. We really never found anything. We think it, uh, the puncture site had clotted off by then, and the patient got a couple units of blood and did fine. So when a patient starts having unusual pain post-op, check some labs, watch your vital signs, and be sure there's not some kind of weird thing going on with bleeding intraperitoneally or into the uterus. And we just actually had a case recently where we kind of went through this differential. The patient was having pretty significant post-op abdominal pain. So I think what I'm hearing you say, which is also kind of what we did in this scenario, was let's check for anything that's not where it's supposed to be. So is there, we checked the maximum vertical pocket of the recipient post-op and let's just make sure that there's not amniotic fluid leaking into mom's peritoneum causing a peritonitis as well as checking hematocrit coags to see if there's any bleed anywhere. So those are kind of some good starting points of, is everything where you left it fluid-wise, and is there any bleeding that you can't see? Yeah, I've seen moms complain of pain when, for whatever reason, you pull that cannula out of the uterus, and I guess it doesn't clamp down, the muscle doesn't clamp down, and they empty their entire recipient sac into the peritoneal cavity, and you do a scan, and there's floating loops of maternal bowel and fluid, and no fluid in the recipient sac, yet she's not complaining of vaginal fluid coming out, and so she's had an intraperitoneal leakage of amniotic fluid. It's sterile, so it doesn't, it may cause some shoulder pain, some irritation, check her vital signs, check her clotting studies, check her hematocrit, they're all stable. And what's interesting is in all those cases I've seen, only seen a couple of times, that fluid gets absorbed within a few days and a hole seals itself off and the recipient fills the sac back up almost in every case. So it's a weird presentation, but it can happen to you where you see leakage of amniotic fluid. And kind of on that same note, let's say the nurses call us about this time the patient is leaking fluid per vagina in the recovery room. Now what do we do? What are we going to do to evaluate? Yeah, especially if you think there's some membrane separation, and sometimes you can see that pretty quick after you pull the cannula out. We always look at that site for bleeding and membrane separation. That fluid can dissect around and come out through the vagina. It doesn't mean she's truly prommed. We usually, there's not much we'll do that day, so we'll just kind of see what happens. And a lot of times it'll seal over. Maybe it's just the fluid that leaked between the membranes, and once it's worked its way out, your major hole is still intact. So we'll watch that. There are some reports within 24 to 48 hours, if the fluid's leaking dramatically, that people will do something called an amnio patch. I would caution you to only be sure you do that if there's no signs of infection and do it soon after some sort of iatrogenic rupture of membranes. I think it's been used both after amniocentesis and laser. But we'll be conservative for the first 24 to 48 hours. I've done a couple of amni patches and I have to always go look up the formula for the ingredients. It's basically taking plasma or rather cryoprecipitate in platelets and some calcium and inject them in a concoction to cause basically a fibrin clot to occur. And the idea is kind of like fix a flat. It works its way to the hole and seals it. And it can be successful in more than half the cases. But we, we use that very rarely. Most of the time, these early leaks will go away on their own sometimes. And again, if you look at the recipient sac where you put the hole, if it's got a lot of fluid in it, we'll just watch. But if it's all gone, then you might consider an amnio patch at some point. And again, you'd have to look up the different amounts of cryoprecipitate and platelets to put in that. But it's something to keep on the back burner that would be available in acute rupture of membranes within, say, 48 hours of doing a laser with lack of fluid in the recipient sac. And then we keep them on nifedipine post-operatively to control contractions, but what do we do if that is not covering their contractions? They're looking organized. They're maybe getting closer together. She's pre-viable. What are we going to do there? Sometimes we'll give them some subcutrebeline. What if mom's tachycardic? Down. 
we can't give her terbutylate. Well, her heart yeah. rate's too high. Yeah, good point. I think on rare occasions, we put them on mag sulfate overnight just to quiet things down. And I guess you could keep indocin in your back pocket too, because it's a powerful tocolytic. But just use your typical tocolytics to try to quiet things down. I mean, we make a hole in a muscle and we you know, leave that hole in there for 30 minutes to an hour. And so sometimes that muscle gets angry and then you take a very large uterus and make it smaller as you do the amy reduction. And it's not uncommon to have some irritability in the first few hours, but it usually settles down with just the nifedipine, but keep turbutylene and mag in your back pocket. The nifedipine doesn't seem to be working. There's one other thing I forgot to mention. I think it's the coolest thing. And Ramesh, one of my former fellows, actually taught me this. When you're doing your solemnization, you kind of get lost sometimes. Breadcrumbs. I forgot to remind you about the breadcrumbs. So we call it breadcrumbs. But basically, when there's a big zone where there's no vessels, but you want to make sure you solemnize there so you don't miss any spiders, you can, like every field or every field and a half, make a little spot with the laser. And then when you go, once you finish your vessels, you take your vessels first, you can go back and follow the breadcrumbs and follow the yellow brick road and just connect the dots. And so we normally collect, connect the, not collect, connect <laughs> the vessels. But sometimes if you have a big zone where there's no vessels and you want to solemnize across it, put a couple of dots there and just connect the dots. And then you know you've got the right area. You're not going to stray too far to the left or the right. And that's just another little trick we've learned over time. Thank you, Ramesh. Well, Dad, anything else to add from laser school before we dismiss class? No, I'm sure we'll think of something else in the years to come as some new complication goes our way. But I think that's sort of all the little tools in the chest that we've come up with over the years for these weird circumstances. This is not an easy procedure. It has its nuances and it will throw you curveballs and you have to be ready to duck and weave sometimes during these procedures. Oh, I have one more to add, actually. Sure. We had one where we just could not get the image to clear up and it was green and it kept being green. Oh, right. And I think what we missed was to re-white balance it when you switch between scopes because the right. green light from the laser fiber will throw off your white balance when you're switching between good operative point. and yeah. diagnostic. Yeah. yeah, you get really good at the technical aspects of the equipment because a lot of times the scrub techs don't have any idea what's going on, particularly the night float people. So yeah, you got to be good at your own technology there. Well, roommates, laser school class dismissed. Dismissed. That wraps us up for this episode. Thanks for joining us. This is Aaron Moise signing off. And this is Ken Moise. More to follow. See ya. Oh, oh, oh.